Hello, guys, and welcome to the very first episode of On the Flight Line, the podcast where we will bring you in-depth conversations with people from all walks of the flight line. I'm your host, Marcus Gropel, and I'm so excited to be joined today by our very own Dave Wensley. Welcome. Thank you, Marcus. Good to be here. Thank you so much for joining us. I mean, you're, you are the first guest on our show. Oh, I'm lucky so, me. Lucky I'm me. So, yeah. I'm so excited. Yeah. Because I don't know what to expect, but I'm, I'm excited to, to learn all about you. <laughs> <laughs> I've been reading your bio, and I, let's just say, I didn't know you could do, you have done so much. I haven't, I haven't heard, but I haven't, I, when I read this, I was like, he did all this? Well, I did a lot because <laughs> I'm old. You have a lot of time to do things, you know. <laughs> so, okay, so let's start with, you know, what got you started? with aviation was it just young age or was it well yes i would say it's young age you know uh, s sometimes people say it's uh, the child makes the man and the man and uh, i got interested in aviation of course uh, when i was very young uh, world war ii was going on so there was a lot of talk about military activity and airplanes and that sort of thing uh, i of course had my aircraft spotters handbook and would uh, scan the skies trying to see airplanes and identify <laughs> them. Of course, there, and growing up in Miami, there weren't any German or Japanese airplanes, which were mostly what was included <laughs> in the book. But uh, And then I got into model airplane building, and I built uh, gliders and rubber band-powered airplanes and finally gasoline-powered. So uh, all of that kind of uh, shaped my thinking for the future. Future. Wow. And then you went to University of Miami. I did. Uh -huh. And what did you use? Electrical engineering. Right. Is, yes. I also, uh, while I was a kid, I played a lot with uh, mechanical things and electrical things. Uh, usually uh, or occasionally starting a little fire in my bedroom when I was working on a, some kind of chemical or electrical project <laughs> <laughs> like I, I built a welding machine in my bedroom for example and uh, that caused a lot of problems uh, it wasn't too popular but no, no fire though no yeah, fire. small small just small not, yeah not. yeah <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh okay so let's talk about your so you when you okay so it says here you delayed your enter entering into pilot training Yes, uh, as soon as I uh, was graduated from the university with my degree in electrical engineering, uh, I, of course, had completed ROTC in college, so I was ready to go into pilot training, but there weren't any openings uh, at the moment. Uh, the uh, pilot training uh, ranks were pretty full at that time. This was uh, right after the Korean War, so there was a lot of patriotism, and uh, a lot of uh, people had signed up uh, you know, for ROTC during those years in the 50s. So uh, I had to wait a few months. So I got a job out on the West Coast here at Douglas Aircraft in Santa Monica uh, to spend my time before I went into uh, the Air Force. Mm -hmm. Wow, okay. So then, okay, then you finally got into training when? Well, How far? Well, it was uh, in uh, 1956, early 1956. I don't remember exactly the date, but uh, yeah, and the usual process then was you start at Lackland Air Force Base <laughs> in San Antonio, Texas, and do uh, uh, pre-flight training there. Mm -hmm. And then from there, I went to Moore Air Base in McAllen, Texas, to do uh, primary uh, flight training. That's where you... Uh, 
you uh, uh, learn to fly uh, the you know the fundamentals, the basics, and then you solo the first time. I remember that was really an exciting day after seven or eight hours worth of training with a with an instructor. Uh, then he gets out of the airplane, pats you on the back, mm -hmm. and says, "All right, you're on your own. Take a few turns around." <laughs> they the, send you. The they field. send you on your way. Send That's you on it. your That's way. It. Pretty exciting <laughs> stuff. Uh, so I was in the T-34 mm -hmm. Mentor at the beginning, sort of like a Bonanza, uh -huh. you know, the twin V-tail Bonanza. It's like that airplane, but with a conventional tail and a two-place uh, cockpit, uh, uh, tandem cockpit with the instructor in the back. And then from there, um, we graduated to the T-28, the North American Trojan T-28, which Lovely is a airplane. very serious airplane. Uh -huh. uh, the T-34 was a toy compared to, uh, to <laughs> the, the T-28. T T definitely a, cha a change. Massive airplane, heavy, sturdy, mm -hmm. uh, pretty exciting airplane to fly. You can do all kinds of aerobatics and you know, night flying and instrument flying and so forth. I had a tough instructor. I, I guess I was kind of lucky because he was really good. He had been a, he was a civilian. He'd been a a former crop duster, mm -hmm. uh, but he was really mean. <laughs> uh, he he called my parents names I'd never even heard of, you know. Wow. And <laughs> yeah, he used to pound on the uh, the glare shield mm -hmm. or the sun shield over the instrument panel until uh, he would put dents in them with his fists oh as he screamed uh, obscenities <laughs> at me and the other students. And during the time I was uh, under his uh, tutelage. Um, he washed out several students, which meant they had to leave the program. Oh, wow. In fact, uh, we had nine students go through uh, him uh, while I was with him, mm -hmm. and only two of us uh, graduated. Unfortunately, the other fellow, uh, Dick Kesson, we became good friends. Mm -hmm. He later on was killed flying an F-100. Oh, mm -hmm. So out of the nine students that went through that instructor, I was the only one that Actually completed Wait, the training and went on and so it was and just you two that that com one that completed only the training. two of us only yeah, two out, out of, of nine yeah wow then right. he but then he must be really he was tough really tough. <laughs> he was tough yeah. I I I was like okay maybe there was nine you know they they stuck it out but I guess he was really the one that or were you best friends with him after or was it no 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 I was not best friends with him at all. <laughs> <laughs> but he taught you how to. He taught you that training. He, right? so he uh, taught, you taught the fundamentals. Oh, that fundamentals. was that was good. It was a good good start. <laughs> I'll put it that way. Well, oh I got lucky gosh. though. I went on to a jet training uh -huh. in uh, Bryan Air Force Base in Bryan, Texas, mm -hmm. and I had another great instructor. This one uh, he hadn't been a crop duster as far <laughs> as I know, but he was uh, he was in the German Luftwaffe in World War II. No way. Yeah. Oh my. So at the end of the war, when the war was uh, almost over, he surrendered on the American side. And uh, I don't know how it worked at that time, but he found his way into the Air Force and became an instructor pilot. He had flown the uh, jet-powered, excuse me, the rocket-powered airplane, the Comet, the ME-163, during oh. the war. Mm -hmm. He probably flew ME-109s or Focke-Wulf 190s, too, and he, he may have been responsible for shooting down some of our airplanes, oh. but he never talked about <laughs> that. He, talked. Only, he only talked about his role flying the Comet Interceptor, the okay. rocket interceptor. <laughs> 
So we named uh, he named our little flight of, of students uh, Rocket Flight. Rocket Flight. And uh, I made a painting to put on the wall above our training table with a rocket <laughs> on it, uh, with him astride the rocket, uh, whipping the student in front of him with a, a huge, <laughs> huge whip. <laughs> and uh, so we got along quite well. I had a, had a great time with him. He was tough. Mm-hmm. He was a very good instructor as well, so I got good training from him. I think flying uh, the T-33 jet, um, mm-hmm. of course, was a great experience. It was a startling change from flying the piston engine T-28. Mm-hmm. Uh, anyone who's flown the T-33 or any similar single-engine jet uh, uh, certainly, I think, would agree that it's an amazing experience. Mm-hmm. Once you're in the airplane, you've got your helmet on, your earphones inside the helmet. Uh, you don't hear anything. Mm-hmm. It's quiet. Mm-hmm. It's smooth. There's no vibration. And once you're in the, in the air, you can basically point the airplane anywhere you want to go, mm-hmm. and it takes you there. You're it's in, a you're wonderful in the experience. You go, you're right. in the zone when you go into that cockpit. Absolutely. <laughs> it's a wonderful experience. If you were to go in there, if you were to... Let's say we put you in a T-28 or T-33. Would you be able to still know everything and still go and fly today? Well, in my mind, I could. I don't know if my body's <laughs> ready for it, but my mind could but handle it. Could. Yeah. <laughs> well, I did have the experience last year of, uh, of buying a ride in the back seat of a P-51 mm-hmm. Mustang. And I got uh, seven-tenths of an hour worth of stick time (laughs) flying the Mustang. And I must say that sitting in the cockpit after two or three minutes and looking around, uh, looking at the instruments, looking at the controls, the levers, the dials, the knobs, and all that sort of thing, why, after two or three minutes, I felt very comfortable in there. Mm -hmm. Like you could just take over and go. Absolutely, absolutely. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. So what did you do after your flight training? So you went... Well, uh, when I finished uh, jet school, at that point, uh, students got their choice of where to go. They, the students were ranked from top to bottom, and the number one student got his choice of all the openings for the next uh, opportunity, whether it was a operational squadron or for further training. And I was uh, near the top of my class, so... I could have chosen anything uh, that was available, which included uh, bombers and tankers and transports and day fighters and, and all-weather interceptors. And I chose the all-weather interceptor mm-hmm. advanced course at uh, Moody mm-hmm. Air Force Base in Valdosta, Georgia. I don't know. At that time, you know, you're young and fearless, and you <laughs> say, well, uh, this is the most complicated job I could go after because... One uh, crew member has to do all the work of Mm -hmm. flying the airplane, operating the radar, operating the fire control system, uh, doing that at daytime, nighttime, all kinds of weather. Seems like a a tough assignment, so I think I'll go after that. So (laughs) I went into that school, and Mm -hmm. uh, I was right. It was a difficult Difficult. assignment. It was tough uh, tough to learn, Uh, but... uh, after a few months, you felt felt uh, extremely confident uh, in handling the airplane. Mm-hmm. There was no two-place trainer like the T-28 or the T-33, so the very first flight you took in that airplane, it was solo. Mm-hmm. And with an afterburner pushing you from the rear and uh, swept back <laughs> wings uh, and a high-speed takeoff and climb out, uh, it's quite an exhilarating uh-huh. experience, yeah. 
and then that pushed you to keep on going, keep on. Right, right. <laughs> oh, then I had this brilliant idea since I was born and raised in Miami, mm-hmm. and I, I was married right after I got out of college, so uh-huh. um, neither my wife nor I had ever seen snow. So, no, uh-huh. again, I had my choice of uh, where to go next, and there was an opening with the 324th Fighter Interceptor Squadron up in Westover, Massachusetts, which is near Springfield, uh-huh. Westover, Westover Air Force Base, I should say, which is near Springfield, Mass. Uh-huh. So I decided that would be a great experience. We'd go up there and uh, find out what snow is like. <laughs> and, uh, boy, oh, boy. Uh, that was kind of a mistake. And then, uh, you, came <laughs> o- and then you came over here, right, for, for the beautiful Southern California weather? After I, <laughs> after I got, got my fill of the snow, exactly right. I know, because that's a big change, right, from Miami to Mass- Massachusetts, right? Oh, it's just let me tell you a big change. Listen, uh, I'm, we're driving up to uh, Massachusetts, and we're going through Maryland, mm-hmm. and we got out of the car to have lunch. And there was ice everywhere, and, uh, of course, I kind of ignored that. And within a couple of seconds, uh, I was on my butt, and I'd sprained my right arm, and it started turning purple. (laughs) So I had to put on a makeshift sling. Uh My wife had to take over driving. Mm -hmm. So when I got to the squadron to report to the commanding officer, I went into... uh, to, to meet him and report for duty, and I couldn't raise my arm to salute. And I can just imagine what was going through his mind. Yeah. He must he must have said, they expect me to use this guy as a pilot, and he can't even, <laughs> can't walk, even walk, you know. <laughs> but uh, oh I got gosh. over that in a few days. Uh-huh. And, uh, but I'll tell you, my first experience was uh, rather unnerving, uh, Within a few days, I was ready to fly, mm-hmm. and so the squadron commander told me to take an airplane, take an F-86D, mm-hmm. which is what we were trained uh, to fly in, uh, the first uh, single-seat all-weather interceptor the Air Force had. And he said, go uh, take an aircraft and fly around the area and get acquainted. See what the airfield looks like from the air. Look for the landmarks. Uh-huh. Look for the auxiliary fields around uh-huh. uh, and just uh, in general, get familiar with everything. Uh, find out where the mountaintops are, where the towers are, mm-hmm. so you'll know the area when you come in. So I started doing that, and the weather was uh, deteriorating when I took off. There was lots of snow on the ground, but so far it hadn't snowed actively since we'd been there. But there was plenty of snow on the ground. Anyway, uh, as I flew around the area, it kept getting darker and darker, uh, sky turning gray, and I Mm -hmm. could see this gray sort of a wall moving toward the field. Mm -hmm. So I called for permission to come in and make a landing, and the permission was denied because four of the squadron fighters were taking off in sequence, and so I had to wait for them. Meanwhile, the the uh, grayness around me got thicker and thicker till all I could see was the field directly below me. So finally, after the four fighters took off and disappeared into that gloom, I came down and made a, a landing. And as I rolled down the runway and opened the canopy, I realized it was snowing heavily. <laughs> and it was very exciting. Mm-hmm. I could hardly wait to get out and feel these big white blobs, blobs you know. Yeah. Snow angel you know. <laughs> and, you know, <laughs> <All> that, <right>? snowball. <laughs> 
But it didn't have a very, well, it had a sort of a unhappy, happy ending. Mm -hmm. What happened next was they recalled the four fighters, and they started coming in and landing one at a time. And meanwhile, in the flight shack, we could hear the radio calls uh, over the loudspeaker. And the fourth airplane, a, a fellow named Stewart, I think it was Sam Stewart, mm -hmm. uh, a lieutenant, he couldn't, couldn't uh, find the field, mm -hmm. even though he was under uh, radar control. Uh -huh. The, the uh, ceiling had dropped down below 200 feet. So we went outside in the snow, and it was by this time it was a full-on blizzard. Oh, and just standing near the, uh, the parking ramp, we couldn't see the runway. Wow. And we could hear Stuart going by. Mm -hmm. And making a go around, and he did that two or three or four times. I don't remember exactly. Mm -hmm. And then the sound quit. Oh. So we knew that he'd run out of fuel, mm -hmm. and we didn't know what happened to him. So we all went in, and everybody was pretty gloomy, and we, gloomy. Uh -huh. we sat in the flight shack waiting for some word. And, oh, I don't know, maybe half an hour, 45 minutes later, Lieutenant Stewart walked in the door. <laughs> He had ejected uh -huh. over the field, and the airplane went on and crashed in the Springfield City dump. And oh, so, in, in a dump. So they, yeah, they, yeah. at least they disposed it properly, right? Yeah, yeah right. <laughs> was, I don't know if that was his plan, but it worked out that way. It worked way. out yeah, that way. Yeah, 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 that was, so that was my first day on the job, it, and I uh -huh. thought, oh, my, what have I got myself into here? It was like, exciting though, and then it, at least you got you know you got to do more right because you went to Morocco af right after Massachusetts. Well, yeah, or? I was there in Massachusetts for quite a while. There were a lot of more incidents there. Mm -hmm. um, the job was uh, air defense, mm -hmm. and uh, to be quite blunt, we were trained to shoot down Russian bombers, and uh, this was uh, sort of the uh, one of the most intense phases of the Cold War in the late 1950s. Everyone was pretty paranoid about the possibility of Russian bombers mm -hmm. streaming over from uh, the North Pole and coming down through Canada and attacking uh -huh. the United States. And at that time, we didn't have the early warning radar set up, so uh, it was rel relatively short-range radar, so there wasn't a lot of time to get fighters airborne. We had uh, missiles in uh, a lot of the cities at that time, to intercept uh, uh, enemy bombers should they arrive over our territory. But, you know, by the time a, uh, a Nike Ajax or Hercules uh, lights off on the ground to shoot mm -hmm. down a bomber, it's already overhead. So oh, uh -huh. that's a little late. Mm -hmm. So the role of the fighters in the Air Defense Squadron was to get out in front of uh, the targets and, and shoot down the bombers. So we'd be on alert 24 hours a day the typical uh, assignment for a squadron fighter pilot was to be on alert for 24 hours and get 24 hours off to rest and then practice uh, day missions uh, the next day and then the next day you do night missions mm -hmm. and, and then uh, start the cycle all over again. And when we weren't scheduled to be on alert, you'd uh, play the role of a uh, simulated bomber coming in from Canada okay, uh -huh to be intercepted by other fighters from your squadron. And what that meant was, um, as a simulated bomber, you'd come in on a straight line, say heading for a city like Springfield or Worcester or Boston or uh, New Haven mm -hmm. or something like that. And then uh, the fighters would be 
uh, scrambled and directed up to make an intercept uh, by ground radar. Uh-huh. Once you got within about 30 miles of the target, uh, a fighter pilot could then locate the target with his onboard radar and then uh, lock onto that target, and then the fire control system would guide him into making the intercept. Uh-huh. We didn't carry the rockets, uh, which were our our weapon system uh, during most of these missions, uh, but uh, each intercept was recorded on tape, and then we'd review the tapes back on the ground after the mission. So that was the routine day in and day out uh, for weeks on end. And during that process, there was one uh, particularly uh, notable event I was scheduled to be a target in a T-33 on a particular exercise we were having that involved all of the fighter squadrons in the northeast uh, Boston Air Defense Sector. And my job was going to be to fly up to the Canadian border and then turn around and come back and head for Boston in a flight of three ships, three T-33s, acting as a uh, a small squadron of Russian bombers. As I taxied out to take off, and it was snowing heavily that morning, um, my transmitter quit on my radar, radio, radio, excuse me, and so uh, I had to turn around and go back. Uh, there wasn't enough time to get into another T-bird to go com- uh, uh, meet my rendezvous point, so they scrambled a T-33 from Stewart Air Force Base in Mm -hmm. in New York. Uh, What happened next was rather unnerving. Uh, I went back to the flight shack to await another assignment. A little later, we heard the news that there had been a mid-air collision. Mm -hmm. It turns out that the position that I was to take in that flight of three, that particular T-bird had been hit by an F-94 uh, F, uh, uh, starfighter and uh, knocked out of the sky, and two pilots were killed. Oh. So uh, I don't know, call it luck or whatever, mm-hmm. uh, although I've often thought if I'd have been in that T-bird, he would not have hit me. I'd have gotten oh. out of the way. Uh, the un- it was unfortunate the other guys did yeah. not. Uh-huh. So, yes, and after that assignment, uh, oh, and this was a rather interesting uh, event also. While we were at Westover, one day we were surprised to learn that there was a, a brand new F-104 arriving on the base. Mm-hmm. Well, we had a sister squadron, the 337th Fighter Interceptor Squadron, headed up by uh, Colonel James Jabara, who was a famous Korean ace, multiple ace, I should say. And uh, he was bringing in the first uh, F-104 starfighter that the 337th was going to receive. So we figured the 324th, being the sister squadron, Mm -hmm. we'd be getting our 104s next. Yes. Well, instead, we got orders to ship out to Morocco oh. uh, to a place called City Slamane, uh-huh. wherever the hell that was. <laughs> we, we had no idea. <laughs> Some of the pilots didn't even know where Morocco was, much less City Slamane. <laughs> so, yes, after a, a, a short period of time, a few weeks later, we found ourselves arriving on this uh, 
this remote site down mm -hmm. in the middle of Morocco okay. where we were going to continue our uh, intercept uh, mission using F-86Ds that mm -hmm. had been shipped over uh, actually on a ship from New Orleans. Mm -hmm. They had to be assembled in uh, Brindisi, Italy, and then flown down to City Slamane. Mm -hmm. But over the next few weeks, we were outfitted with our new airplanes. New airplanes. Wow. That's just you know, the way that you, the movement that you had to, you went from the, from the, the cold, cold area, then you go to Morocco. Was it, <laughs> was it cold in Morocco or was it just? It was like, bloody hot, I can <laughs> tell you that. It was miserable. Uh, we lived in plywood huts, uh, the, the squadron pilots uh, oh and the crew and uh -huh. the uh, and enlisted personnel and other officers, non-flying officers. Mm -hmm. Most of us lived in uh, these leftover wooden huts from World War II. Mm. Although the married officers uh, were able to get on, uh, you know, on on-site housing mm -hmm. in in the uh, at the air base. But I had made the decision to leave, leave my wife and newborn child uh, back in, uh, in the States. Mm -hmm. And so they went back to Miami and, and lived with uh, her parents until I completed my tour. Mm -hmm. I wasn't sure I wanted to stay in the Air Force at, at that time. Uh -huh. uh, I still had the possibility of an engineering career. Mm -hmm. And I'd had an, a sample of what it was like to work for Douglas Aircraft and... I was in their missile division. That mm -hmm. was pretty exciting, mm -hmm. new development work. So I was kind of torn between continuing with an Air Force career or going back to engineering. Mm -hmm. But my tour in Morocco kind of uh, decided that for me. Yeah, it was not all that enjoyable. The mm -hmm. flying was good, mm -hmm. but the maintenance on the aircraft was poor. We had mm -hmm. problems getting parts for airplanes. Mm -hmm. A lot of times, most of our airplanes were grounded for mm -hmm. lack of parts. Uh -huh. We had lots of uh, failures of equipment uh, mm -hmm. in flight. Uh, for example, during the time I was there, uh, two pilots had to abandon their aircraft uh, and eject because of engine failures and fires on board. I know of four, let me think, three, no, four uh, dead stick landings that mm -hmm. pilots had to make because oh their engines quit and they couldn't get them couldn't, restarted. Uh -huh. Personally, I never had any serious event happen. I lost a lot of, uh, or I should say I've had a lot of equipment failures mm -hmm. like the uh, fuel control system failing, the hydraulic system failing, instruments failing, that sort of thing but each time was able to make it back safely to the base. Uh -huh. So I didn't have any serious problems. There was one event. Uh, occasionally we got the pleasure of taking an airplane back to Italy for what's called Iran, which is inspection and repair as necessary. Mm -hmm. And it was really necessary on these <laughs> airplanes, I can tell you that. And uh, anyway, uh, I was flying wing on a a more senior lieutenant, mm -hmm. and we were taking two F-86s back to Torino, mm -hmm. and uh, I had a lot of problems with my airplane. One of the main fuel tanks didn't feed, uh -huh. so I was running low on fuel. I'd lost my artificial horizon, so oh. I had to depend on him mm -hmm. to fly his wing and not 
get isolated where I'd have to fly on my own. Mm -hmm. And we made it down to Torino and uh, found out uh, on final approach that it was snowing again. <laughs> oh, this was uh, Springfield, Massachusetts all over again. Uh -huh, it's all over. But uh, we had been advised that they were going to have uh, high scattered clouds and seven miles visibility. Oh, well, my gosh. No, it wasn't true. No, it turned out to be heavy overcast and uh, about 300 feet. <laughs> Ceiling and <laughs> completely wrong. Completely wrong. They completely gave you the wrong, wrong information. Yeah, don't trust the weatherman. So <laughs> I don't we, think we trust him now. I landed on his wing. I, I landed on Lieutenant Edwards' wing, mm -hmm. and uh, we made it down. I turned off the runway and pulled into a parking slot, and my engine quit. I was out of fuel. Right. What? Right when you pulled in, it just just gave quit. Up. Oh, yeah. God. So, perfect timing. Yeah, perfect right. timing. No right. go-arounds right. necessary. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, my gosh. Any more fun stories about your... Well, uh, just to mention that the job at City Slimane was to protect the bombers we had there. Our frontline bomber in the 1950s and, and beyond, 1960s, and so was... Uh, the B-47, an amazing, beautiful six-engine jet airplane. Uh, very difficult to fly. Uh, there were a lot of problems with that airplane. I think something uh, a little over 2,000 were actually built. Wow. Mm -hmm. And they were stationed uh, all around the world uh, with targets in, uh, in Russia and, uh, and uh, Russian-controlled uh, uh, satellite nations. Uh, fortunately, they never had to make those raids on Russia. The Cold War ended uh, without us having to drop any bombs mm -hmm. or having to intercept any Russian airplanes and shoot them down uh, as they were attacking the U.S. So that's the good news. But uh, during, the, uh, during the time period that the B-47s were in use, I think over 200 were lost in either training or, or uh, practice missions mm -hmm. along with their crew members. So it was uh, the, the Cold War period uh, was, was not cold for everyone. Mm -hmm. there, were, there were lots, lots of people lost uh -huh. just trying to hold a line and make sure that we provided uh, adequate deterrence mm -hmm. um, against the possibility of, of Russian attacks. I did have an opportunity to fly in one of those B-47s. Uh, we, there was a reason to, to uh, go back to Homestead Air Force Base, which is where the squadrons came from that flew over to City Slimane on temporary duty. Mm -hmm. So I got an opportunity to hop a ride in one. So I sat on the, uh, on the floor Mm -hmm. below the pilot's uh, feet uh, <laughs> and flew the something like, I forget, 12 or 14 hour mission. Uh -huh. It didn't take that long to get from Morocco to Florida, but mm -hmm. we didn't go straight there. Instead, mm. they flew over the Midwest and did simulated bomb runs over, over. several cities before oh, wow. turning back southeast and going into to Homestead near Miami. Mm -hmm. So I got to see my my wife and newborn son, who of course did not recognize me, uh, for a, a happy weekend, and uh -huh. then returned back to Morocco to continue my tour. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, we had lots of opportunities to intercept unknown aircraft uh, flying out of city because um, there were British and French uh, military as well as civilian aircraft in the area and the coordination between flying units, civilian and military, uh, well, I'll, I'll say it was just less than, uh, than complete. So quite often we'd have to intercept an unknown airplane uh -huh. and go up and identify it by its markings mm -hmm. and radio the information back. Mm -hmm. They all turned out to be friendly, friendly. fortunately. I'm going to pause for one second. So where were we? Okay, we're back on. We got everything working again. Right. Well, uh, so it was, Marcus, it was uh, about time for me to make a decision whether to continue as an Air Force pilot or return to civilian life. And I chose to, uh, to take my opportunity to leave the service. Mm -hmm. I think it was the right decision for me. There was a rather interesting incident uh, the last month I was over there. Mm -hmm. The squadron commander was not happy with me for <laughs> deciding to not re-up for another uh -huh. two years. So he got the word out I wasn't to be allowed to fly again he and collect you. my yeah, collect my <laughs> flight pay flight for pay. the last month. That was 150 bucks added to my oh. my meager salary. So oh. that was really important. Uh -huh. I wanted that money. <laughs> so I hung around the flight shack every day, uh, looking for an opportunity. And one day the squadron adjutant uh, came out into the the flight shack area and said, I need a pilot to take uh, a package over to division headquarters in Rabat. I leaped up and said, I'll do it. <laughs> Grabbed the package and ran out and jumped in an airplane and took off. Well, I needed to, to log two hours over and two hours back, which is about the maximum possible duration you could squeeze out of an F-86D. Uh -huh. Well, I managed to do that, got over there and Delivered the envelope, got refueled, got back in the plane, took off. Then I called the tower and asked for permission to make a high-speed pass. They said, permission denied. <laughs> I, I interpreted that to mean a permission approved. <laughs> and so I circled around, put it back in afterburner, uh -huh. went screaming down the runway about three feet off the deck, and then pulled up into a vertical <laughs> climb. Did a series of rolls oh and then headed back towards headed City Slimane. Logged my two hours and collected my 150 bucks. <laughs> so that that was the end of my. Did you hear anything from the tower, or did you never just, heard a word? Never heard, you just never ran, heard just ran a word. With it. Never heard a word. <laughs> I just cashed the check. <laughs> so now you. So you've after that you were, you <clears throat> left the service, right? You left. Yes. Uh huh. Well, I stayed in uh, in the reserves until 1970, actually. Mm -hmm. But uh, I got involved in uh, highly classified defense work, mm -hmm. uh, working on a missile program uh, mm -hmm. and a few other things, and and so I was not recalled for duty in Vietnam. Okay. So for me, it uh, it worked out very well. Uh, I continued. Uh, the missile work and defense work of mm -hmm. various types, and then got into uh, man space activity. Oh, man space. Worked on uh -huh. several projects, including the European Space Lab, some payloads that flew in the shuttle. Wow. Uh, I was on the uh, manned orbiting laboratory, which was an Air Force project to take uh, a couple of astronauts up into space. And I didn't know it at the time, 
but it was to be a manned spy satellite. Oh, okay. It, it was being advertised as a scientific research, research satellite, uh -huh. but in reality, the payload else. was a gigantic camera. <laughs> so I got got familiar with several of the astronauts at the time, uh -huh. got to, to know them. I had responsibility for the flight control system. Mm -hmm. So I went from operating a flight control system to designing a flight control, control system. Wow. This time for a spacecraft instead of for an airplane. Airplane, wow. So that was very rewarding. Mm -hmm. uh, later on, I was involved in uh, the International Space Station. Mm -hmm. I uh, achieved uh, rank of vice president uh, at the company, at which was then by then McDonnell Douglas. Uh -huh. I ended my career with responsibility for development of a reusable launch vehicle that we were uh, working on mm -hmm. at that time. And then after retiring in, in 1996, I continued my career as a consultant uh, on my own little business, uh, mm -hmm. operating, uh, doing consulting work mm -hmm. in, uh, in Europe and in Russia and in England. Mm -hmm. So. I had a good career, got mm -hmm. to do a lot of traveling, met wow, a lot wow. of fantastic people, uh -huh. uh, participated in a lot of uh, very interesting uh, mm -hmm. interesting projects. So all in all, I think it was the right decision, right decision. for me. Uh -huh. Wow, it's it's just, you have such a long, probably have a long resume huh? by now. You got like, what, three pages, three, four pages worth of resume? Well, with its large type, yes. <laughs> but you worked on basically the the manned space program basically from its start kind of because with Skylab that was the start right of yes we did Skylab uh, at the division I was in mm -hmm. uh, I was only sort of peripherally involved in that mm -hmm. because I was working in parallel with on another uh, advanced design project I, I spent uh, most of my early career in what we called advanced design, which mm -hmm. was coming up with new concepts for new vehicles, yeah. both uh -huh. manned and unmanned, uh -huh. and then taking them through the conceptual phase, mm -hmm. uh, writing proposals mm -hmm. to the various agencies, mostly NASA, mm -hmm. the Air Force, uh, of course. Uh, and then uh, if they uh, were successful in being promoted uh, then they would go on and go into development. But mm -hmm. I stayed in advanced design and development for quite a while. Uh, so it was only, uh, also I, I bypassed uh, Apollo mm -hmm. because uh, Rockwell won the, the competition uh -huh. for the command module, which was uh -huh. the exciting this, part. Yeah. I worked on the design of that, again, on the flight control system uh -huh. for the McDonnell Douglas version uh -huh. of the uh, command module for Apollo. Uh -huh. And we lost that competition, and it, it went, uh, went to other contractors. Uh -huh. yeah. Oh, wow. Okay. So you, you almost got a chance to work on Apollo. Almost. 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 Right. So now... What do you do in your free time now, in the present today? Well, I work at Lion Air Museum yes, as, you work a, with uh, <laughs> as a docent. Uh, I enjoy taking people around uh -huh. and showing them our exhibits and aircraft and talking about uh -huh. uh, World War II history. Mm -hmm. You love hanging out with us? I love it. It's a great <laughs> team of people. Uh, it's, it's, uh, I look forward to uh, being here. I'm mm -hmm. usually here on Fridays, Saturdays, and Sundays, and... Anytime else that I'm needed. Any anytime else. I do have one thing because we're running out of time, and I know you got you got you got places to be. You're always called for for stuff. Would you let's say okay? So so now we know that you know SpaceX is going to try and send people up into space commercially. Would you do that? 
Heck no. That's crazy. <laughs> You've worked so so detailed with, with all this flight control, with Donald Douglas. You wouldn't go? Uh, you well, wouldn't want to go? No, I would not want to go. That, <laughs> that's for people with more guts than I have uh, or are not as smart as I am. It looks I don't fun, know though, right? Um, Live on Mars, maybe? No, it's not no? going to be fun. It's going to be difficult. It's going to be very difficult. Uh, <laughs> It's going to be emotionally taxing, physically taxing. Uh-huh. Uh, the um, the intensity of the training and uh, the issues that the crew are going to encounter are going to be challenging. Mm-hmm. Uh, hopefully, they'll be they'll be up for it as mm-hmm. they have been. As you as you well know, Marcus, uh, throughout the Apollo program, there were some very touchy situations. Yes. Some very uh-huh. Very difficult situations. There were also some lives lost Mm -hmm. uh, during the development program. And uh, fortunately, uh, the missions that were conducted, everyone got home safely. Mm -hmm. Uh, We lost lives uh, during the flights, uh, uh, two flights of the the launch vehicle, Mm -hmm. uh, the uh, shuttle orbiter. Orbiter. Mm -hmm. Uh, So... It's a dangerous business. Mm-hmm. It's uh, it requires very unique uh, capabilities uh, uh, among the personnel, and fortunately, there is a, a, a wide uh, variety of people available to take those uh, risks mm-hmm. who who can meet the both the uh, the uh, mental and the physical challenges mm-hmm. that they offer. But I don't think I'm one of you them. You know. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're out of time. Thank you so much, Dave, for being the first guest on our show. Hopefully, we'll see you back again. We'll talk more, maybe. <laughs> Great to talk with Great you, Great to Marcus. talk with you. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks so much for joining us on this first episode of On the Flight Line. If you like what you heard, don't forget to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. Also, follow us on social media on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, or YouTube at Lion Air Museum. This has been Marcus Gropel with On the Flight Line. Till we meet again, and blue skies to you.